Welcome to He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast with Michael Russo and Jackie Russo. To learn more about how to improve your brand, visit brandrusso.com. Welcome to He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast. Today, Michael, you are going to be so excited. We are joined by Brian Will. And will he or won't he be a great guest? Just kidding. Um, he's a serial entrepreneur, an industry-leading business and sales management consultant, and a two-time Wall Street Journal best-selling author. You know that's the part that hooked me right there. I was like, oh, I love a guy who's written a book. Can't wait to read and learn all about it. During the course of his career, Brian has created or co-created seven very successful companies in four different industries, which makes me feel ridiculous when I'm tired just from four kids and one job. These companies are worth over half a billion, Michael, that has a B, billion dollars at their peak. He's also done multiple turnaround projects for companies from startups to Fortune 500 and helped those organizations drive billions, again, that's with a B, billions of dollars in sales. Today, Brian owns a growing chain of restaurants, a residential and commercial real estate business, runs a business mastermind, entrepreneur coaching program, and, and here's my favorite part, he serves on the city council in his hometown of Alpharetta, Georgia which obviously you have family who live up that way. Um, so we have to make sure that they vote for him next time. I, I don't know how, like, what, what the hell is he doing on our podcast? I, I mean, I, once again, we have well outkicked our coverage. He must've just had a really slow day. He was bored. He um, thought it would I, be, I, you know, I think it's just Christina's really good at her job. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. She probably makes us sound better. You think that they get on the podcast and then they're like, oh, wait, that's not what I thought I was signing up for. I don't know. He yeah. was really good though. Um, for somebody that, that is that successful and that humble and that um, really just nice, um, was impressive. Well, you know, and, and I have always believed so much of people's success comes from their education, but he's a high school dropout. He's self-educated. He's learned what he's learned by the mistakes that he's made, by the lessons he's learned from those choices, by the books that he's read, the work he's done, the network he's built. He is a shining example, I think, of how we all can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and figure it out and get it done. And um, everybody, what welcome Brian Will. Michael and Jackie, he said, she said, I love this. It's going to be awesome. Right? It's going to be fun. I mean, we're going to try to make it fun at least. So, Brian, tell the people a little bit about yourself. You know, they got to hear my kind of long-winded, unnecessary intro, but I think they always prefer <laughs> to hear it from the source itself. So um, tell me a story. You know, I, I call myself the most unconventionally educated entrepreneur out there. And it starts back with failing out of high school at the age of 16 getting kicked out of the house at 18. I had to join the military because I had no place to lay my head down at night. Got off active duty, couldn't hold a job. I was a terrible employee, so I figured I'd go into business for myself. Started my first company in landscaping, had no idea what I was doing. Brian, Did really well until I didn't. For one second. I want to hear the whole story, but right now I am messaging our booker and saying, did you pre-screen this guy? Because I don't know this is who we were looking for. Carry on. Well, <laughs> so it's a good question. That's why I was asking who your audience is today. You know, my background has been building businesses over the past 35 years from venture capital to private equity to doing Fortune 500 consulting to writing books. I've got two Wall Street Journal bestsellers and uh, got into politics here. I think I told you that before the show started. So I've run the gamut on business and and uh, pretty much that's what I do today. I do consulting and, and coaching and executive consulting, et cetera. 
And I love everything about that. And I think that our listener, and I like to make it singular because when it turns out there's two, I feel so much better. Um, I think our listener is going to appreciate that because when we see someone who's gone those steps ahead of us and the challenges that they face and how they've overcome those challenges, I think it's always inspirational. And it's something that we can kind of grow and learn from. I know this is a business podcast and we're supposed to talk about branding, but I think the human condition is an important element of that. So when you look back on all the pitfalls and all the challenges and all the missteps. Um, tell me some of the bigger lessons that you've learned along the way. You know, a lot of them early on were in business and why businesses succeed and why businesses fail. About midway through my career, I started learning more about the mentoring and the coaching aspect of growing as an entrepreneur and learning what it takes to succeed. And now at the end, it's really about working with businesses that are either struggling to scale or CEOs who are struggling to figure out what to do with, with the business they've got and how they can get out of it at some point through mm -hmm. an exit, either through, a, uh, you know, a venture capital, private equity or private sale exit. So that's kind of what I do today. It's I, funny. I, that's, sorry, well, Michael. Sorry, Jack. No, I was just reading the back of your wall behind your head. It says execute failure success. I absolutely love that. I, I think, you know, people talk to us all the time and, um, you know, about business and we've managed to stick around for a little over 20 years, which is, you know, from what I understand is an accomplishment and we're very proud of that. Um, but you know, it's the failures that I remember and, and the obstacles we had to climb, you know, and, um, more than anything, we have, a uh, we have a son that just graduated college. He played baseball his whole life, all the way through college. And, um, I would think that if anything I learned through business, I really learned through baseball and him is how much failure there is to success and how much you have to grind it out and stay the course. And I don't know how that relates to what you're talking about, but, but it seems like everybody's got that, that part of it. Nobody's just walked into success. It just, it, it has to happen a certain way, you know? You know, I call this the hundred lessons from where you are to whatever success it is that you want in life, be it in a business and a job or whatever. And there's an old cliche that, you know, success is born out of failure. And I've always said that that statement is wrong and it makes me cringe. Success is born out of learning from failure. If you mm -hmm. just fail at whatever you're doing, you're going to continue to fail over and over and over. It's learning from that, that failure that will lead you to the next step. And by the way, that execute fair success is a pattern that goes over and over and over and over until you accomplish or achieve whatever it is you're trying to achieve. So one one failure does not equal success. It's going to be a whole lot of them and you got to go through them to get there. Do you feel like you, you you're done with the failure? part of your career or is it still, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, execute fair success is also generally an ego issue with the person that's having the problem. Right. And, and I always use example. They say, well, gosh, Brian, you, you teach this ego issue today when you work with, with executives and how do you keep your ego in check? And I, and I said, you know, I still don't. And I always use example of the last book I wrote. Right. And I wrote the book and then, and I went to the publisher and I, I sketched out what I wanted for the jacket cover. And she came back and she said, that sucks. I said, no, you don't understand. I'm very successful. I've already got two <laughs> books out. One of them's already a bestseller. And she goes, no, no, that sucks. And I literally argued with her for about 10 minutes until I realized I am arguing with somebody who knows a hell of a lot more about books than I do and had to check my ego and let her do the design. And it came out really well. And it's been my bestselling book to date. So that ego check sometimes has to be a conscious decision on your part to allow you to move forward. And, and, and if you can't recognize it, you need to have someone in your life that can tell you that, that you'll listen to. Let's pause there just for a second, because I think that's right. really important. Um, we obviously are professionals and, and experts of what we do, just as you are what you do. And I often hear from our clients and 
shockingly, it's not the bigger clients that pay us a lot of money to do our job for them. It's the smaller clients that pay us a little bit of money to do their job for them. Those clients want to tell us how to do our jobs. And so mm-hmm. we've had to develop the rule of three. Um, I'm going to tell you what we feel like the right answer is here. That's one. They say, no, no, I, I, what about this? I want to try this. How about this? Mm-hmm. Great. Best practices tells us uh, when we look at the industry norms we see, uh, we survey the competitors we find, um, we talk to your customers and they tell us. So we really think this is the right answer. They push back again. No, 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 no. But I like orange better. You who are not your target audience in any way whatsoever and orange is ugly. Okay. Um, So then we get one more time. I get the third chance. Let Let me stack it up and show you all the reasons why. And at that point, I just have to say, okay, it's your money, it's your company, it's mm-hmm. your funeral. Um, how do you overcome that when it's not you having the ego, but it's somebody else you're dealing with who's trying to put their print on it? How do you turn that around on them to make them see the light? You know, it's funny when you tell me the story and, and there's a couple of things. There's the adage that no good deed, no good deed goes unpunished, right? And it's funny, I was talking to somebody today and, and he said exactly the same thing. He goes, you know, my $5,000 clients argue with me and my $50,000 clients just wired me the money. Praise. Amen. A hundred percent. So at some point you got to be like, look, listen, you hired me for a reason. If you're not going to listen to me, I don't need your money that bad. Correct. It's hard though. In today's world though, I mean, you know, very seldom do I hear anybody ever tell a doctor, you know what? I think you're wrong. You know, mm-hmm. or I think well, the you know, doctor would disagree with you. I, I have conversations <laughs> with them every day. OK, it's harder. It's harder to second guess a doctor or a technician or somebody that's out of the realm. Like in what we do for advertising, everybody's an expert. Everybody knows knows more than we do or because they've seen it. I mean, they live in it. I mean, you live in an advertising world. It, it's thrown at you. And every every time you turn on the TV, the radio, you walk down the street, you're being bombarded with that. So everybody's kind of an, and they are they're kind of an expert as consumers. Right. It's just, you know taking that and turning it into some kind of a strategy that makes sense is a little bit more, um, you know, above that pay grade, you know, I, I have the same challenges. And I, one of the things I own today is a chain of restaurants. And I always go in and tell them design this menu. And they're always telling me, look, that's what you like. That's not what the public likes. I'm like, no, everybody likes a smash burger and fries. <laughs> so, you know, I have to, you know, go ahead and check my ego and let my team do their stuff and do what they want to do. So, I mean, I think we all fall on that trap at some point. No, 100%. I, I read that in your, um, I was reading about you, uh, about which restaurants chain is you, are you involved with? So it's a, it's a privately owned here. It's called central city tavern and it's just in the North okay. Atlanta area. Awesome. Awesome. That, that's my, that's my dream. If I'm going to run away to the circuit, it's going to go, go wait tables again. Um, I, I made my way through college and after bartending and waiting tables, and I love the service industry. I just loved it. And, um, and we, as and Jackie did as well, and we like to hire people with restaurant experience because it, it, it applies so much to our business. Um, mm-hmm. If you're in front of the house, you know how to manage people and read tables and, and those kind of things. If you're a wait staff, you know how to, um, you know, get in the weeds and how to work out of it and how to manage your time. And there's so many lessons to be learned out of the service industry. Yeah, we just were big fans of it. But like I said, I, I would I would run away and do that if I could. I did it on a, we sold a couple companies in 06 and 08. And I used to take my team out for drinks and happy hour every day. And after we sold the company, they were like, why don't you just buy a restaurant now? I said, hey, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And I bought one and it failed. And so I bought four more because that's what you do when you fail. You, you dribble down. Mm-hmm. And then we've just been buying and selling and building over the last 12 years. And that's, that's awesome. where we are today. 
So what do you look for when you're either planning to acquire a business or positioning it for sale? What are the big good flags and not so good red flags that catch your attention first? So if you're talking a business, it's probably $5 million or less. We buy what's called distressed owner businesses, not distressed businesses. Distressed businesses are on their way down. They have problems financially. We're not a turnaround shop at that level. But if you find a distressed owner, which is somebody that has a solid business, they have the revenue, but they don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. That's something that we can acquire probably at a discount. Uh, and we can make money almost immediately because we know the formula for how to make money in these businesses. So, and then if you go into, you know, bigger businesses, it gets a little bit different, but that's, we, we focus in that one to $10 million range. I like that. I like that. You know, when I think about dis distressed owners, um, I think about this um, kind of wave that I've been reading about um, with the Silver sunset, I think they're calling it, uh, because there's this entire generation of business owners who have silver hair now and have been running their companies that they founded, you know, 30, 40, mm -hmm. 50 years yep. ago. And now they're all looking to exit and they don't know how to exit or what to exit. Yep. What advice do you give to them? You know, you bring, I would say bring in a broker to start with about a year mm -hmm. early and let them tell you exactly how you need to position everything in your company for the next year so that when you finally do go to the point of selling it on paper, you know, it looks like magic. Right. Everything in buying and selling businesses is about the numbers. Um, so those numbers need to make sense. And if you need to make adjustments to it, most small business owners don't run P&Ls. It's fascinating to me. They don't know their numbers. They don't know their percentages. They don't know their core metrics. They don't know how to predict the future. Um, so if we can set them up properly and build those financial packages correctly and let them run it for about a year, you can increase a multiple significantly on the sale of a business. Right. So do you really just look one year back? I would think the norm would be to look two, three years back. Typically I'll do two, but again, we get back to this issue. You'd probably be shocked. Maybe you wouldn't at how many times I've gone into a business and said, give me 24 months worth of P&Ls month by month in an Excel spreadsheet so that I can do a trend analysis on your port core metrics. And they always say, I, I don't even know what that is. I, we don't have any of that. What did you do your taxes last year? Well, yeah, well, I, I just gave my accountant a shoebox full of receipts and they did it yeah. for me, mm -hmm. right? So that's the challenge. If they don't have that data put together, then you're going to ask them to recreate it. My best case scenario is create it from scratch today and we'll build, run it out for a year. And at least we've got a year's worth as opposed to two. Right. You know, I find that what you're talking about, this um, owner, founder, president mentality of, I am really good at making this widget. I'm not so good mm -hmm. at running a business also yep. permeates itself into marketing and branding. They can mm -hmm. make really great things that fill this need, but they have no idea how to tell somebody through good messaging and good marketing why they're the right choice. I, I go into businesses all the time. I do a lot of consulting. And um, I, when I ask, you know, what makes you different from the competition? I hear the people. Yeah. <laughs> So we call that. So we have these five keys to success for any business, right? And one of those five keys is why would anybody buy your product and why would they buy it from you? Mm -hmm. And if you can't answer that question, there's nothing unique or special about your product. There's nothing that draws those people to you or your business. Then you're a dime a dozen. You're never going to scale and you've got problems. So people say, well, how do I figure that out? Like, I don't know. It's your business. You tell me. <laughs> And if you can't figure it out, you better come up with an answer because you've got to do something to make people be attracted to what you're building. Right. And if that's marketing, you know, one of the other keys to, to success, we talk it is who are you and who are you not? 
Mm-hmm. If you're a technician, as you said, I'm really good at building or, or doing whatever, but you're not good at the marketing. You're not good at the management. You're not good. Then you need to backfill your weaknesses with other people, whether they're internal partners or you hire them to fill in those gaps so that you have a well-rounded organization that can push that build that business forward and scale. And it sounds like you guys are that outsourced marketing arm that people bring in to say, okay, I know how to do X, but I don't know how to sell it. So you tell me, sell it to the public for me. Right. Yeah. Well, and I find that crosses both lines, you know, B2C and B2B. Um, Somebody's usually great at this one thing. And so Mm -hmm. they can either stay and and there's, you know, an amazing book on it about the E-Meth. You can either stay working in your business or you can start to replace yourself so you can start working on your business. We work primarily with middle-sized companies that have gotten through that point. They've grown. They have a team now. They've gotten kind of big. But now all of a sudden, they're stuck on doing things that they did to make themselves successful 10, 15, 20 years ago. Right. And forget that the world's changed just a bit in the past five years. Yep. We call this the cycle of business. And if you're not, if you're not progressing, right, every successful company progresses. Apple computer started with motherboards. IBM started with typewriters. You know, DuPont started making dynamite. You progress as the world changes and that's how you succeed. So you've got to progress. And if you get stuck, it's because you haven't progressed and you need to bring somebody in to help you do that. Right. No, it's, it's, and by brilliant. the way, the E-Myth is one of my favorite books. It's like it's my top three. So smart. Yeah. If you so read my smart. books, you'll see the E-Myth scattered all throughout there. It's right. That rich dad, poor dad, and, yep. uh, and blink. I'm glad. Well, those are my top so three. Good. Yeah, it's one of my favorite books too. I've read it twice. All about the psychology of um, why people make decisions, which is why they succeed and why they fail. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, was, I was waiting to see if Jackie reacted because I have not read a book and I don't know how long. It, yeah, <laughs> I, I just let it go. You know, one of us is the reader and one of us is not. And that's OK. We can't both be. I'm fine with it. Um, I like pictures. What can I say? When Michael <laughs> reads a book. Uh, it's usually an audio book uh, from when he was driving our son to baseball practice in Little League. Right. Um, so we're, we're past those days now. So he hasn't read in quite some well, time. We did, since though. Then. And you mentioned uh, Malcolm, right? Um, Outliers. Malcolm Gladwell, that was yeah. one of them. Yeah. We, I don't know how. Like Somebody recommended it to me. I bought it on tape and, and Some, he narrated the whole thing. Yeah, I'm you the did. somebody who recommended right it to you. <laughs> and he he narrated himself. He's got the best voice, by the way. The best. Yeah. I mean, as far as somebody narrating his own stuff. And I was blown away by that. I mean, his analogies, the sociology behind it. And um, now I haven't read a lot since then, but but it was impactful in my life. I, I reference it all the time. Blink and Outliers, two of the great books by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it's interesting. Malcolm's going to listen to this episode and he's going to think, I'm so complimented that you like how I narrate my audiobooks, but I'm so hurt that after this one great experience, you didn't go delve into the rest of the library. He's got like 20 of them. I yeah, started he's... reading the, the Goliath one, I think. Um, was yeah. it Goliath? Mm-hmm. Yeah, David, David Goliath, Goliath story. Yep. Anyway, it was, and that was pretty good. But yeah, I got busy. Michael, you're breaking Malcolm's heart right now. <laughs> well, if he's listening, I love your books, man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? I'll, I'll send you one of mine. Later. I'll I'm send sure you mine can. because, you know, a lot of your stuff is just weaved in there. <laughs> um. So, so, Brian, when you're thinking about... Um, your diverse roles, because I think none of us these days get to just pick one job and stay at it. So you're Mm -hmm. um, buying companies, you're selling companies, you're founding new companies, you're turning companies around, you're running city government. You got a lot going on. How do you balance all of that? I'm ADHD. Okay. 
<laughs> and I have good teams. I tell people all the time, my ADHD is one of my superpowers. It allows me to sit at 30,000 feet and look at a surface level of everything that I'm doing without delving into the details. And if you look at the businesses that we run or may manage, I have our accounting department break everything down into what I call four five or six core metrics. And we break them down into a percentage level. And so if I look at a business and I know these are my core metrics and the percentages are with 1%, within 1% of where they're supposed to be, I know I don't have to dig into the financials. I don't have to dig into the management. I know everything's working. If one of the numbers is off by more than one or 2%, that's when I say, okay, somebody go tell me what's wrong here. So right. if you have good people and you know what you're tracking from a number perspective, uh, it's easy to manage multiple things. I like that. You know, I, I think about um, the, the people who actually do listen to the podcast are typically marketing directors and, and VPs of marketing. And so they're focused on one business. So to mm -hmm. take that example, uh, because I think that's an important piece of knowledge, not just for owners and, and founders and CEOs, but also for people in the trenches. How do you advise them when it comes to looking at their marketing budgets, determining ROI? The number one question I get asked I mean, and it's more than once a day. Um, how much should my marketing budget be? So it's this a, is an interesting question. I just did an analysis for a national franchise company, and we we analyzed their top two units, their bottom two units, and their middle two units. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, in an environment like that, use, having the ability to look at the different levels of success, we tracked 24 months worth of P&Ls. We, we, we measured these top six metrics, one of those being marketing, and we looked at all these units and what they spent on a percentage basis and how it affected both their uh, their attrition replacement, you know, when you're losing business, as well mm -hmm. as their new business uh, revenue. And we were able to specifically identify what the percentage marketing was in that business in order to keep sales level, to grow, or to not. Now, in a franchise, it's easy because we have multiple units to look at. In an individual business, you really got to build that. We call it reverse PL and analysis. We use pattern recognition on those six core metrics. And then we look at the different levels of that budget over time and how it affected the business. And you can literally predict the future based on what you're doing today if you continue doing those same things. So wow. it's really a matter of pattern recognition, reverse PNL analysis. I call that time travel, by the way. So we nice. can time travel ahead and, and figure out what's going to happen with your business based on that. Because it's all trends. It's all trends. Everything is pattern trend, recognition. You know what's happening. I love Elon Musk. He said, you know what AI is? Everybody's all hot about AI. He goes, it's, it's trend analysis. That's all it is. We're calling trend analysis artificial intelligence, but that's really what it is. Right. Trend analysis is magic. Yeah, and it's funny because everybody gets so freaked out about it, some present company excluded. I'm not talking to you and me, Brian. Um, and yet when it comes down to it, it's nothing but a fancy Google search. Yep. They have access to every bit of information on the planet and they have algorithms and trend pattern analysis that just says, oh, this is what's going to happen. Well, you can do that in your business too. Now, yep. if you're a single business and you're only tracking one set of marketing metrics, then all you need to do is track it back two years and look at what you did every single month and how it affected the, the ongoing months. And it might take you more time because you might have to play with a few numbers. But if you will keep that trend analysis in mind with everything you do, you will eventually figure out the pattern of what works, what doesn't, what's oversaturation. You know, you'll figure that out. And then if you need somebody to come in and do that with you, then that's somebody, you, something you should do. I'm curious if um, as you have a bunch of businesses, lots of success, years in, in different things, different industries probably as well. Do you see yourself as the business now? You know, does that make sense? The question like. No, it is. That's I, a, I, 
I jokingly say that like today I've got 200 employees working throughout our different companies. I'm kind of, and I've always built companies. I I call it difference between being self-employed and being a business owner, right? Self-employed is you work for Mm -hmm. yourself. Business owners have business processes, systems that they put in place. And if you want to build something with intrinsic value that you can sell someday down the road, you need to build a business. Except I've done this so many times, I'm kind of ready to go back to, for me, be in the business. Now, there are downsides to that because if something happens to me, I can't work. But I also don't need to. And now what I do is really for fun and to help other people. So yes, I am the business today. Mm-hmm. And was there, in that being said, like in, in your career, lifespan of your career, was there always a, um, we, we call, you know, we work for a company or a business, we try to figure out their brand promise or some people call it unique selling proposition. We mm-hmm. think it's more emotional than that. It's like that one differentiating thing that you do that nobody else does, you know? Did you always know what that was for you when you went into each venture? I know each business will have its own promise behind it, but what was yours going into? I had into no what idea. What I, bring? I had no idea what I was doing in any business I started. I mean, zero, zero. When I got into the insurance business in 1996, they sent me out in the field and started selling. I didn't even know I had to be licensed. I'm out there illegally selling insurance in 1996. The, the, whatever that's called where they can't prosecute me anymore is over. That's so there you go. That's gone. Thank uh, goodness. But they did. I did that. I didn't know. I had no idea. When I went, we started the internet company. I had no idea what I was doing. We were doing online marketing. Didn't have a clue, but we had a great team of people. Um, today, I will tell you, you talk about marketing. And when we, when I was talking a little bit about the pattern recognition, when we go in and, and do an analysis for a company, and I do most of my analysis on the sales side from the marketing efforts, right? We go back and track those patterns across every marketing channel, every type of marketing, and then we track it on every product line and we track it on every salesperson, right? Because at the end of the day, no matter what you're doing in marketing, somebody has to sell it. So we've got to track where that marketing is coming from, how much money was spent, what channel it came from, how it went down into the sales force and how they converted it. And I have in many cases lowered the marketing budgets by changing the sales forces, uh, sales tactics and, and systems so that we didn't have to do as much marketing. We made more money off our marketing, a higher ROI with less expense and quite frankly, less people. That's yeah. that's what we do. No, and I subscribe to the exact same theory. I think about a hospital, regional hospital system that we started doing their marketing for um, 2010, maybe 2011. We took 65% out of the budget within the first year and yeah. got more reach and frequency because we mm-hmm. just spent the money better. If you treat yes. it like an investment, and, and you really analyze every step of where you're spending it and who you're reaching and are you reaching the right people. I had a company the other day tell me that they had 127 target audiences. And I said, you have 120 places where you're wasting money. The other seven are probably valuable. Well, the problem is, uh, Jackie, as you probably know, too many organizations track their marketing budget from the top down. And they say the more we spend, the more revenue we're getting. But instead, they should be tracking it from the bottom up because that marketing has to be converted, right? So more rev- more marketing spend does not necessarily mean more profit on the bottom line. If I'm doing $100 million and making $10 million, I'd rather do $50 million and make $10 million. Correct. Because I have $50 million worth of less overhead, employees, expenses, headaches, liability, and all the rest of that crap. And then if Correct. I can build $10 million of revenue off 50 and then build that profitably, by the time I get back to 100 I make $30 million dollars. Yeah. So most organizations don't do that. They track top down instead of bottom up. Well, and I think that the agencies and the consultants that guide them are part of the problem. Why? Not me and you, of course, but others, Um, because they're being paid on the volume of spending. When I was a media buyer, bring me those big budgets because I'm making 15% of the budget. Now I don't get paid that way. 
Right. So, the measurement is wrong. You got to measure the right thing. Exactly. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. Yeah. Well, yeah. Everybody who's still in business and successful right now, I would imagine, has changed that model because it, gone are the days of the madmen um, when somebody's going to hand you a hundred million dollar budget and tell you just to go do whatever it takes. I mean, it's not like that anymore. Well, it's funny. We call this everybody's a genius in an up economy, right? Everybody's mm -hmm. a great stock trader when the market's going up and revenue solves almost all problems. And so if your company is doing well and you just keep piling more and more and more money on it, and you're making more revenue, you're making more revenue and more profit, but you don't realize that you're not really doing it at the most efficient pace. And then COVID comes along and COVID washes out the weak and leaves the strong. And every time there's a downturn in the economy, the weak, the, the weak are gonna get hammered and the mm -hmm. strong are gonna remain. So you've got to build a stronger base in your company so right. that you can't be hurt by some unknown foreseen economic, whatever's gonna happen. Yeah, well, and also unknown foreseen prediction of an economic force that might happen but never did because yeah. at the time of this recording in June of 2023, we've been hearing about an impending recession for two years. Mm -hmm. Yep. I keep waiting. It hasn't showed up yet. No, but you never know. You never know sure. what might happen next. You know, sure. another bat's going to get out of a, a farmer's market in China and we're going to have right. COVID three and, right. and Ooh, you know, the weak that. are going to get washed out again. Right. So you got to build a strong base. You got to get your company. And it's not about top line. It's about bottom. No, exactly. Unless you're trying to go public. Oh, good point. Good point. Because that <laughs> does change the story a little bit. You've got it a different uh, set of criteria to answer to. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a bit about the books. I know they're great. I know they've been on bestseller lists. I want you to take a moment and promote them because I'm getting ready to jump on Amazon and buy both of them right now. Well, my second book was called The Dropout Multimillionaire. And it's really a uh, business. It's a book about building business, scaling business, and getting ready to sell a business. This is what I talked about earlier. If you're, if you're in trying to fast launch or if you're in a business that's not scaling properly, and it's more mindset, it's more soft scuffs soft skill. It's not technical. I'm not going to tell you how to set up a bank account. It's got nothing to do with that. It's about more about being a CEO or an entrepreneur. So that's about building a business. The last book just came out two weeks ago, this one right here, that's called No, The Psychology of Sales and Negotiation. And it's a lot about what we just talked about, right? You can spend all the money in the world on marketing, but somebody has to sell. And you're either selling it online and the customer's buying it off of whatever marketing package you're putting together, or you've got butts and seats or people on, on the street we're selling your product. And this is really about the psychology of why people buy, right? It's what they're thinking in the sales process, the, the customer. It's the objections that they're going to have to whatever your product is and how you can overcome those objections prior to them having it by building proper sales scripts, by understanding what the customer thinks. Again, it's not a hardcore sales thing. It's not about slamming. It's not cheesy sales lines. It's psychology of sales and negotiation. That's what the book is about. And that's the one that I'm ordering first. I'm so excited about it. It sounds awesome. <laughs> and she's not kidding, by the way. She has a, um, this ridiculous <laughs> collection of business books behind her um, and at home that is, you know. No, you can't really yeah. see them on the shelves right behind me uh, because they're way up high. Uh, but there's probably a solid three or four hundred in here. Well, there's you, a, know, you remember the, the movie, um, Cocoon, um, sorry, Cocktail? Yes. 100%. Okay, we're big fans. Yes. Well, um, when Flanagan walks up and uh, well, not Flanagan. I bet he's got a business name? cook behind the scene. Yep, there it is. Right. Uh. That's it. That, <laughs> yeah. That's that's Jackie Russo. She has a business book at every like. If you look, search her. She's probably got one in her pocket somewhere. Let me tell you, and I have a I have a library just like yours, and I love this because I'm the guy. Yes, yeah, see. The one the I just ordered. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm the guy that didn't go to college and fell out of high school, right? So, I, I was talking to my daughter 
couple months ago and she's looking at all the books on my shelves and she's like, daddy, you have a lot of books. I said, no, honey, that's my brain. Right. Right. That is no, my brain. Absolutely. Uh, look, you know, we wrote um, a business book uh, during COVID um, that is really one of my proudest things because I didn't graduate from college. And so to be able to take the 20 plus years of knowledge and experience and turn it into something to help somebody else get a shortcut, I think mm-hmm. it's an awesome thing to do. Heck yeah, man. Yeah. Giving people the opportunity to skip the mistakes you made and show them how to accelerate their growth and level up their person and their business. That's just a great feeling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah I just got Peter Levitan's new book, How to Build a Kick-Ass Advertising Agency. I mean, I get that we're 23 years into this, but there may be something in there that I need to know for the next chapter. Hey, I just bought the book, How to Write a $100 Million Offer. That's how far behind I am. Like you're at the billion now. Your offers have B's in them. So I feel like you're 10 times higher than that these days. For yeah, sure. but I'm starting a new business, man. I'm, I've got, got to get I'm writing content right now for them, this new website. There you go. Um, you, let's talk for a minute, Brian, about professional development. I wait, feel hang on. Like, before you, before you oh, jump into that, it's a whole other okay. thing. Because I have just on what you were just oh, talking about, Brian, earlier, the sales part of it. Is there still room today for that? I mean, you know, I know there is. I mean, I believe that, but it seems like we're in a we're in a time where my dad's always preaching to, to both of us about um about sales and business and an old school way of doing things. And and we're in such a new modern era of 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 things moving so fast and, and really impersonalized marketing and 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 but having that ability to close a sale, to open a sale, to to pick up the phone and 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 without sound like you said cheesy or or something typical that you've already heard, is there room in the world today? I know there is because we want that, but can people still get by on that? Are you saying can people get by on learning how to sell? Can people still do it? Can is 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 there? Oh. I don't know if I might ask the right question, but it's like <laughs> it seems like there's there's such an obstacle to getting to that point. You know. I say this all the time. And when my first company was bought out by a venture capital group out of Silicon Valley run by a bunch of engineers, and I'll never forget going out to to uh, San Jose and meeting with all these guys. And they're like, well, engineers are the smartest people in the world. And they're, they're, you know, they're the geniuses and they're, and I said, yeah, but no matter what you create, somebody still has to buy it and somebody still has to sell it. Okay. So unless we figure out how to sell what it is you're making, then you're just going to create another piece of software that doesn't go anywhere. So Somebody's always going to have to sell. And I don't care if that means it's, again, as I said before, I don't care if it's somebody on a phone. I don't care if it's somebody in their car driving to your office or if it's somebody designing the product sales system on your website. It's still sales. Somebody's still got to do it. You still have to understand the customer. Yeah, I guess so, what I'm getting at is that it seems like everybody's in a, in a hurry to shortcut everything nowadays. You know, they want the the quick the quick fix, the quick sale. I'm going to. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of cheat the system. I'm going to hack the system. You know, everybody wants to hack and wants a, wants a quick way to get there versus the grind, you know, of, of actually putting the time in and, and making that effort. It'd be nice. Hold on. It'd be nice if uh, we could do that, but that just means you're going to be throwing a hell of a lot of money. at something that you can do a hell of a lot easier if you just learn how to do it right. It's no different than what y'all do. People hire you because you're going to make their marketing better, Right. If they don't want to hire you, they can go on with what they were doing before, but they're going to spend a lot more money doing the same thing and you'd have better results. Yeah, absolutely. I think specifically the example Michael was uh, kind of referencing with his dad. So his dad was in international sales for years and years when it meant traveling to the country, handshake, spending a week 
with the customer, having dinner with them, bringing them gifts, you know, all of the ceremonial aspects of mm -hmm. it, who puts their business card first, you know, you, you got to eat and drink, whatever the international guest provides for you, a lot of challenges. He about lost his mind when he found out we now close on Fridays. We've gone to a four-day week and he said, how's that possible? What if your client wants to meet on Friday? And I said, I schedule it for Thursday. But, but what if Friday's the only time they can meet? I said, then they're not a good client. Right. Oh my gosh, he still hasn't gotten over it. And so I'm trying to find this balance between um, the old school ways. You know, I still think customer service is important and I think direct interaction is important and some of the new school ways, embracing the technology. Um, you know, I don't travel to my clients anymore. We Zoom, which right. don't tell him whatever you do because I will not hear the end of that. Um, so <laughs> where do you find the balance in these? How do you how do you make the old and the new kind of work together Hey, as we world. like to say, the last company making buggy whips was swearing that cars were never going to make it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we change with what happens in the world and we get better and we get better and we get better. So what we're doing is better, easier, and faster today. Yeah. Thank you. I'm going to make that buggy whip analogy to him, see what he says at dinner. That'll be fun. Yeah, I love that so one. You're going to accuse him of being the buggy whip salesman. He is a buggy whip salesman. <laughs> Trust me. For sure. You were asking about professional development, Jackie? Yeah, that's where I was going next. Um, so with professional development, I feel like that's something really important. And I see in my clients kind of one of two approaches to it. Uh, the companies who see it as an opportunity to build their employees, um, they see it as a recruitment and retention tool. Uh, they buy books like yours and give it to their teams. Um, they are sending their teams to conferences. They're uh, investing in training for their teams. And then I see this other mindset, and I feel like I know your answer, but I still want to hear you say it. This other group that is of the opinion that if they train the, the team well and, and spend a lot of money, and then someone on the team leaves, they're taking all that knowledge with them, and the company has since wasted their money. So mm -hmm. uh, where do you fall on this, and how do you advise – how do you handle it with your own companies, and how do you advise others on professional development in the modern era? You know, they, the, the old saying, uh, train them like – what is it? Train them like they're a threat to leave, but treat them in such a way that they won't, right? So if you're spending money training people and you're afraid they're going to leave, that's probably because you're not treating them well enough. And then there's the, the old adage again that trying to replace somebody that you've trained probably costs one and a half to two times more than it would have cost you to just treat them right in the first place. Yep. And I know that's very hard to do, but I see it all the time. In fact, my daughter called me the other day. She's a director of development for the Salvation Army in Tampa, St. Pete, right? And she's like, Daddy, this happens over and over. Somebody comes and wants a raise. We tell them no, they quit. And then we put an ad in the paper offering the next person more money than we were paying the last person. Why do people do that? I said, honey, because they're short-sighted yep. and they've cost themselves time, hiring time, and now they got to pay more money and they got to retrain somebody. And you know, the devil, you know, versus the devil, you don't know. You don't know the devil of the next person you're going to hire. At least you knew the devil of the one you already had. So uh, that's just a short-sighted uh, way of doing things that, that it, people will probably continue to do for a long time, but that's the way it works. Yeah. And I ask every entrepreneur that we have on the podcast and every C-suite executive uh, that we get the chance to interview and all of the successful ones say exactly the same thing you just said. Yeah. And so it's amazing to me when the people who aren't successful, who are struggling with it, don't listen to the experts in the room and think, oh, well, they're successful because of the way they treat their people. 
Well, it's because of two things. Number one, there's that ego problem we talked about early on, right? They have an ego problem. They think they're right. And number two, it's because in most of these smaller mid-sized companies, that money is coming out of the owner's or the entrepreneur's pocket. And they're looking at it as a personal hit that they don't want to take. And there's a whole nother lesson to be learned there about lifestyles and expenses and safety nets and proper financial planning for your company. But that's generally why that happens. I also find is there's a whole subset, uh, and this is the one that's most interesting to me, of the marketing team leaders who are perhaps compensated on a profit structure, and they mm-hmm. get real cheap real fast because they've started to imagine that money as their own instead yep. of imagining what the return on investment could be if they just invested it properly in the people and in their efforts. So. It's a crazy you know, it's world funny. out there. We, we, we talk about this in sales organizations and we go in and we, we put together compensation and bonus programs. And one of the things I've always said to organizations is no matter what we do, no matter how flawless we think we're going to create a system, your employees will figure out a way around it. Right. Always. And they'll do things that are not are, are detrimental to the company's best benefit or best interests. In, in their own best interest. That's going to happen every time. And then you have to change. That's why compensation plans change so many times in companies because the execs or the CEOs going, holy crap, they figured it out. Okay, now we got to change it. And they'll change it thinking they got another flawless one and they'll fix it. They'll change it again. But, you know, and I, I hear you because I see our clients doing it all the time. But I just think, don't we want our employees to make more? Aren't we, shouldn't we be incentivizing them with no ceiling so that they continue to get rewarded by their efforts and it grows and grows and grows? Why would we want to cap that? As long as it's in the best interest of the company, right? And this, right. you're exactly right. I'll give you an example. I did a, an insurance carrier up in Minneapolis. I won't say who it is. And, and I took their top salesperson and I ran the persistency and longevity numbers on the business this person was writing. And they were actually not profitable because they were pushing so much volume through that looked good on the front end, but down the road, it was falling off at a much more rapid rate than everybody else's business was. And so while we were compensating and bonusing and giving rewards and trips and trophies, truth is we had people that were selling less, making more money because compensation system wasn't properly set up. So you've got to get everybody's interests aligned, company and person and then, yes, let them make as much as they want, as long as a company is also benefiting from that. That's right. just something you got to get and do a deep analysis on what's going on in the company. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. Brian, I think that you have just been this wealth of knowledge. And, and I feel like it, in this short amount of time together, we've barely tapped into it. What were the questions you were hoping that we would ask that we didn't get to yet? Really, one of the questions I ask at the beginning is who's your audience and what do they want to hear? And that's always my question because I'm here for y'all, right? right. Whatever I've got to bring to the table is is for y'all. And if your audience wants to hear it, hopefully I've got a story, as I said early on, that can uh, help get that point across. So, uh, yeah, I could talk for days, days and days I and days. A, um, so. I have a question. Um, so we mentioned my son earlier. He just graduated from grad school. And so he's out looking for a job now. He's you know, planning on going to Nashville. That's his next step in life. And um, he's went to a really good college, uh, played baseball in college. A good young man, very much has a lot of his mother in him. Um, <laughs> he's going to be successful. I'm hoping he'll come home one day and take over our agency, but we'll see. He wants to go do his own thing first. Um, what advice would you give to anybody right now at that age group when they're getting ready into the world? Um, obviously, probably more prepared than I was, than Jackie was, than you were, um, as far as mm-hmm. education-wise, experience and upbringing and all that. So what do you, what, what advice do you have for them? 
find a mentor, whether it's in the company that you work for outside of it, find a mentor that has been there and done that. And it can tell him and lead him and guide him in the direction he needs to go, help him make decisions, bounce ideas, bounce questions, bounce problems off of, find a mentor. A lot of big companies have those within the organization. I think it's an invaluable thing that a lot of people don't take advantage of. But if you don't, find somebody outside of the business. Y'all are very well connected. I'm very sure he could find somebody that would that would mentor him. Because, you know, our kids don't listen to us. We exactly. could say the same thing that somebody else does, and they're going to listen to them and not you. <laughs> so y'all need to just, let's get back to that check that ego thing. We need to be as parents be like, all right, fine, go listen to Joe. Like, I taught Joe, but you listen to Joe. That's good. Uh, you, but you, yes, you find a mentor. You hit the nail on the head. I, sorry to jump in, but you totally hit the nail on the head. Our daughter, who's the next in line of the four of them, uh, is about to graduate in chemical engineering and has been recruited by a really large um, multinational company uh, that just is right in line with her skill set. And when she showed up for this uh, summer position, she has to come back, finish school, and then she's angling to be a part of their full-time uh, leadership program. They assigned to her a mentor as part of the mm -hmm. LDP, Leadership Development um, Program. And she's like, Ugh. and I said, no, 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 this is the greatest gift they could have given you. Trust me. So she has to have a meeting with her LDP. She doesn't schedule it because she thinks, you know, what am I going to ask? Corporate calls and says, why haven't you met with your, your leader yet? Your mentor is waiting for you. She goes, mm -hmm. oh, I'll take it seriously. I said, yeah, you do. Turned out to be the greatest meeting she's had all summer. That yep. person had this great list of tips and questions and suggestions. And so Jordan has a whole plan now and a path and she's getting to do really cool things. She's developing a, uh, a tool for them that she's going to end up getting patented before the end of the summer, which I just think is ridiculous. I'm like, y'all know she doesn't clean up after herself, doesn't wash dishes <laughs> and never picks up her room, right? Y'all know that. Balance her checkbook, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't know how to change the thermostat. It just makes me crazy the stuff she does as a member of my household. But apparently in the workforce, she's a rock star. Um, yeah. And so I love your advice about a mentor because I see the two of them where he's got his MBA now and is trying to figure it out. She's still an undergrad. And because of the mentorship program that was forced upon her, she already has a path to full-time employment and a managerial track. So mentors promise make you, all the I difference. promise you, I promise you, I promise you, and I promise you, your success in life, your education got you in the door. Your success in life is about you and people that you know, the networks that you make and the education you put yourself through is going to make the difference between a little success and rock star status. People that you know, your network is huge. So Get a mentor because they can connect you to the right people. They make the right introductions. They put words in for you. They're looking out for you. People love to be a mentor. I do. And so when I, I have someone that wants to, to, me to be a mentor, I'm like, yeah, let me push you here. Let me help you do. Let me do that. I'll do this. Right. Uh, I, I, let me give you a quick example. And I know we got to go. My daughter, uh, she was with the university she graduated with in their development department. And so she was allowed to teach a baccalaureate class. And it's the first class every freshman and coming freshman has to take. And she called me one day at the end of the first quarter she was teaching. And she says, Daddy, I got two students who didn't do their homework. And I have to fail them. And if I fail them at a baccalaureate, they're failed out of college. What am I supposed to do? Because I don't want to fail these kids. And she, I said, well, call them both in and say, look, you have a week. Give me everything you were supposed to do in a week. And I'll forget the fact that you didn't do it. A week later, she called me. I said, what happened? She said, one did it and one didn't. And I said, what happened? She goes, person that did it pass and I failed the other one. Right. I, she said, I tried to help. In other words, 
The mentors want to help you. They will cut corners. They will make things happen for you. They will forgive mistakes that were made as long as you get there, get out there and do the work. But you got to do it because if you don't, you're hurting yourself. Absolutely. So Good advice. And I'm, we're going to repeat this conversation to him tonight. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, got, you got home for the summer and he's leaving in a few weeks. But uh, no, we will definitely reiterate those things because we've said it, but it's sometimes, it, you know, you're right. You have to hear from somebody else, you know? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Well, and it's not yeah. what you know, it's who you know. There's a reason why always. it's called an old adage. It's because it's true. Always. Yes. Always, 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 always. Who you know. Yeah, absolutely. I jokingly tell my kids I can fix almost anything. And that's only because I know a lot of people. Right. You know, right. take advantage of me. I, I know how to get stuff done. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, Brian, this was a gift. Um, I appreciate you gifting us your time and your wisdom and your knowledge and your experience. I encourage everyone to go buy your books um, and follow you on social media. I know I'm already working on my Amazon order right now. I can't wait to get them in and read them. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this is exactly what I think I know I needed to hear today. And I think probably other people listening feel the same way. Thank you for your well, time. Michael and Jackie, I can't thank you enough for having me on the podcast. This was awesome today. Thank you. You were great. Thanks. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. And to everybody listening, make sure you reach out to Brian uh, with your questions because he wants to be your mentor. He's already said so. Uh, line up. He'll give you all the free advice. <laughs> uh, but definitely hit Amazon, grab his books. And uh, as always, come back for the next episode of He Said, She Said Razor Branding Podcast. Day.